Well, good morning again, and welcome to The Grove. Okay, when you came in, we handed you one of these scripture journals. Let me see if you got one. Hold them up for me. Let me see. There we go. Everybody grabbed one. If you didn't get one as you came in, go and do it. You're going to need it this morning and the next nine more, next nine Sunday mornings that follow, because we are launching into a 10-week sermon series on the Gospel of Luke. 10 weeks on the Gospel of Luke, and our goal over the course of the next 10 weeks is it's not just information. Like, sometimes we approach Scripture and we approach it from the aspect of how do we mine this text for information for our lives. But what we're after here in the Gospel of Luke sermon series, and in general, anytime we approach Scripture, it's not for information, but it's for formation. Because the words that are in here have the power to transform our lives. The words of the life and the teachings of Jesus have the power to change the way that we think and feel and believe about literally everything. And so for the next 10 weeks, we're going to walk through Luke's gospel, his account of the life and the teachings and ultimately the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so what I hope that you'll do is that you will bring this with you for the next nine Sundays. This is kind of a contract that you didn't know that we've entered into. You have to come for the next nine Sundays and bring this with you. Now, I'm sure there's going to be a stack of these on the table as you leave now because you're like, well, never mind, I don't want to enter into... But here's what we need you to do. There's some consistency that's important in this. But I want you to use these both at home and on Sunday mornings. So bring them with you. Hold on to them. Write in them. Make notes in them. Hopefully yours will start to look like this, where you start to journal in the margins. That's why it's designed the way this journal is designed, so that you will highlight and underline and ask questions and circle and draw dots and lines and however you want to engage with it, questions that you don't understand, insights that you feel like the Holy Spirit is leading you to, we want you to use this to engage with it. And we're going to ask you to do that on Sunday morning. So there are pins in the seat backs in front of you, unless you're on the front row, and then turn around and ask the people behind you to be kind to you and share with you. But we hope that you'll make notes. We hope that you'll use this as we engage in this scripture. There's also a couple things in here I want to point out. The first is a bookmark. So you can use this during the season of Lent, starting on Ash Wednesday for 40 days, not including Sundays. We have broken the Gospel of Luke down into 40 different readings. Or Gospel of Luke takes about two-ish hours, two and a half hours to read. And so for those of you who are feeling adventurous, read the Gospel of Luke every week until Easter. And you will have a different experience of the Scripture if you do that. But that's for you. And then as well is this Lenten schedule. We want you to know about all of the ways that you can grow in your faith here at the church during the season of Lent. So pay attention to that. And then the backside just gives you an overview over the Gospel of Luke. Okay. I feel like a bit of a salesman this morning. So how about we get to Scripture? So I'm going to read it. Read along with me in your Scripture journals. Hopefully you can find this passage this morning. We're going to be in the very first chapter and we're looking at the first four verses of the Gospel of Luke. That's all we'll have time for this morning. And it's like the second page in your scripture journal. All right, here we go. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, 
just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. That's one sentence. If you ever got marked for bad grades in grammar because you had run-on sentences, you're in good company with the author of the Gospel of Luke. But this is how Luke starts his Gospel. One giant sentence. But it's very similar in a lot of ways to how most historians during that time period begin any type of work of history. And so there's a couple of questions that we probably are going to need to talk through and answer before we get into what Luke is trying to say here. The first, who has written this gospel? Well, Luke doesn't tell us it's Luke, but elsewhere in the New Testament, we have information that confirms that Luke wrote the gospel of Luke. Yeah, we're going to get real deep here this morning, so hang on. But Luke writes this gospel. Who is Luke? Well, Luke's Uh, a couple of things that we learn from other places in Scripture. Luke is a physician. He's a medical doctor of sorts. Uh, Luke is also an investigative journalist. As you'll see in this, he has been tasked by someone, we think is named Theophilus, to inquire, to discover, to do due diligence, to interview people and then corroborate testimonies and stories to try to confirm the facts around the life and the person of Jesus. In addition, we know from the New Testament writings that Luke is also a companion of Paul. He is somebody that journeyed with Paul, went on Paul's uh, trips and missionary endeavors to start and plant new churches all over uh, the ancient period and the eastern kind of area of Asia. But what we're learning from Luke here is that he's been asked to do something by somebody else. And so one of the things that we have to begin to look at is who asked him, why did they ask him, and how has Luke gone about kind of compiling this gospel or this account of the good news of Jesus' life? So if you look at verse 3, kind of the very end, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus. Now that name, Theophilus, means loved by God. There's a bit of disagreement on whether or not Theophilus was a specific person or a general title given to all those who may one day in the future read this gospel who are also loved by God. But there's a little clue that I think tips Luke's hand as to his intent in terms of the recipient of this writing. The two words before that, most excellent Theophilus. Now, elsewhere, Luke writes and uses the term most excellent. It's a a title that is given a high-ranking Roman official. And so it's likely the case that whether Theophilus was the person's actual name or just uh, a nickname that Luke ascribes to this person, he was probably, and most likely a male, an actual person and a high-ranking official in the Roman Empire. Now, the other thing that we need to know about Luke and where we get a lot of this context about who he is and how all of this happened was Luke didn't just write this gospel, but he writes kind of a second half of this gospel called the book of Acts. Luke is concerned with the life of Jesus. 
Acts is concerned with the life of Jesus' disciples and Jesus' followers. And together, they comprise the largest section of the New Testament. So even more than, than the Apostle Paul, if you look at it from a word count standpoint, Luke is the largest contributor to the New Testament that we have. Luke is almost 28% of the New Testament. Paul comes in right at about 23%. So looking at both Luke and Acts, Luke is the most significant contributor to our understanding of that early time period and the life during and after Jesus' ministry. So Luke has been asked, he has been commissioned most likely by a high-ranking Roman official to do some inquiry to understand what exactly happened, what's going on with what has been shared about the person of Jesus. So let's pay attention to this. So, back to verse 1. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered to them, to us, have delivered them to us, what Luke goes through right there in those two verses, and I know it seems a little strange because I'm trying to segment parts of one giant sentence, but Luke identifies his three primary sources for how he compiled his gospel. So the first is, many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things. There are other documents already in existence at the time of Luke's writing, at the time of Luke's kind of discovery and detective process about the life of Jesus. In fact, Luke borrows 60% of the Gospel of Mark to inform his Gospel. 60% of the Gospel of Mark. Mark was earlier. Luke is probably writing about 25 to 30 years after the death of Jesus. And so two and a half decades have gone by. There are letters in circulation. There are documents in circulation about Jesus, about his life, about his death and resurrection, and about what that means. Because remember, Luke isn't just writing for information, but he's writing for formation. And we'll get to that here in a little bit. So the first thing that Luke uses is he uses documents that are already in existence, circulating around to inform what he's doing. Additionally, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses, that doesn't need a lot of explaining, they were eyewitnesses, they actually saw what happened, because knowing that we're 25, 30 years after the death of Jesus, there still would have been people who were still alive who literally saw Jesus after he was resurrected. Elsewhere in the scriptures it says that Jesus to appear to roughly 400 to 500 people after his resurrection who were eyewitnesses to and confirmed the fact that they saw the crucified Messiah walking around in the flesh. And Luke says, I've talked to some of these people. I've interviewed them. I've asked them details about their story and then put it against the details of somebody else's story and have found the things that seem to be true across all of the eyewitness testimony. I've included them in this. And additionally, ministers of the word have delivered them to us. This is oral tradition. So that which didn't get written down, but that which was passed from mouth to mouth to mouth to mouth about the life of Jesus about the ministries, the teachings of Jesus, and ultimately about what Jesus' life, death, and resurrection meant. And so, he decides that having followed all things closely for some time past, that he would write an orderly account for you, 
most excellent Theophilus. Now, there's a lot of risk in this, and it may not seem obvious to us because we most likely have all grown up in an environment where Christianity is the cultural norm. Most of the people you know are Christian, and if you know people who aren't Christian, they've grown up in environments where most of the people that they know are Christian. It is hard to go very far, especially in this area, where people don't know who Jesus is. It would probably actually take us a lot of work if we just went out and spent the next six hours trying to find someone who hadn't heard about Jesus. That'd be really difficult because it's just pervasive. It's everywhere. That was not true of Luke's time period. This was something that was happening in this small corner of the world. This would be like if something was happening in some small podunk town in Oklahoma and it started to spread across the nation and ultimately across the world. This would be a strange phenomenon for us because we don't pay attention to anything that's happening in some small little town in Oklahoma. And if you're from a small little town in Oklahoma, like my wife is, it's okay. I'm not directly making fun of you. But if you feel that way, then we can talk about it after the service. But what's happening as Luke's writing is He's trying to figure out what's going on. Because nobody is outwardly acknowledging the fact that this man has lived, this man has died, this man has been resurrected. And because of that, it has changed and transformed their lives. All of this has to be secret. Luke is writing particularly to a group of people who have grown up exposed to the Jewish faith but are primarily Gentile people, those who aren't included in the people of Israel. They're not a part of the kind of the Jewish faith tradition. Mark is writing, and Mark wrote earlier, to a group of Romans, Roman Christians, who are being persecuted. Matthew is writing to a group of Jewish Christians, helping them understand the through line between the Old Testament through Jesus' life into the events of his resurrection. And Luke kind of does a little bit about what both Matthew and Mark do. He's trying to help people see the big picture. Because there aren't places where people can go and talk about it. There aren't churches where they can show up and have conversations and sit down and learn from each other about the significance, the historical uh, fact of Jesus' life and what it means for their life today. And so Luke's like, listen, I've got to put something together that helps people connect the dots. And he, and he tells Theophilus, like, I'm going to compile this together to write an orderly account for you. And this is particularly difficult because Theophilus is a high-ranking Roman official. And the cultural religion of Theophilus's day and of Theophilus's world would have been kind of this, this Roman empirical religion that was kind of the combination of having their pantheon of gods and also that of kind of the cult of the emperor, the worship of the emperor as though the emperor is the son of the god, right? And so there's a lot of different factors and kind of a religious background happening in this, but none of them were welcoming or conducive to Christianity. And so Luke says, listen, we've got to put together an orderly account. And then here's, here's this last part of the sentence in verse 4. And this is where we're going to kind of spend the rest of our time this morning. And if you hear nothing else, this is what you need to know about the Gospel of Luke. 
This is why he writes the entire gospel. That you may have certainty concerning the things that you've been taught. If some of you didn't bring your glasses this morning, you're like, I have not been able to read along at all. We finally got help for you. <laughs> that you may have certainty concerning the things that you've been taught. What Luke knows is that Theophilus has been exposed in some way, whether it's other written documents, whether it's eyewitness account or oral tradition. Luke knows that there's been some exposure on Theophilus' part to the history of Jesus' life and to the significance of Jesus' life. And so Luke's like, listen, I'm going to go be an investigative journalist, put all of this information together, and then I'm going to present it to you in a neat, orderly account so that you can follow along for the explicit purpose that you may have certainty concerning the things that you've been taught. And that's the question that I kind of circled and highlighted and wrote when I was reading through this, is what level of certainty do we actually have about what we've been taught concerning the person of Jesus? Because very quickly, I think that there's kind of four approaches to the story of Jesus. The first is that you think it's just false. For most of you here, that's probably not the case. Otherwise, you probably wouldn't spend an hour of your morning with us on Sunday. Right? It just is flat out totally untrue. That there's nothing believable about it. It's some conspiracy or manipulation of a group of people that has persisted over time and it's a way to manipulate people. It's, you know, it's Nietzsche's opiate of the masses, whatever, you know, whatever cynical remark you might have about it. That the story in the life of Jesus is just categorically false. There's another category and approach and response to the life of Jesus that, well, it's not categorically false, but it is a bit of fiction. Sure, there might have been somebody named Jesus. He might have walked around. He might have been a good person. He might have been a good healer or teacher or wise person in the world, but I don't know if he was actually resurrected. I mean, dead people stay dead, right? That's generally known to be true in the world, especially for a physician like Luke. So the life of Jesus is probably, well, it may not be totally false. It's it probably fiction. It's another response. But I think the largest category is probably this next category. It's not false. It's not fiction. But it's true. It's just factually true that Jesus lived, Jesus taught and healed like was said in Scripture. He was even truly killed, crucified, and resurrected from the dead. So the historical truth of Jesus' life, yeah, I'll accept that. And it doesn't mean much for how I live. True events, but it fails to move the needle in my heart. It fails to change the way that I approach the world. It, change, it fails to change the way that I feel about my relationships. Nothing is going to be different about my life because of the details of this story. It's just things that are true. Where I hope that we get at the end of this series, if you're not there yet, is that it will move from either false or fiction or true to be truth. And there's a difference between true and truth. 
And that is about the significance. That's about the meaning. Because if this is true, then we don't really need to do anything. But if it's truth, it should change the way that we think and feel about our entire lives. Because what's contained in this story and details of Jesus' life is it upends everything that we understand about how gods are supposed to work in the world. It's not about all of the steps that we need to go through, all of the ways that we need to try to earn our way into salvation. It's not about spending our lives working on trying to get into heaven. What Luke does in his gospel is help us understand what it means to allow heaven to get into us. And that changes our relationships. It changes the choices that we make. It changes our actions. It changes the way that we treat each other. It changes the way that we spend our money. It will change the way that we vote. It will change everything about our lives if we recognize that this is actually truth. And that's my hope and prayer over the next several weeks is that as we encounter these stories that we will become certain of the things that we've been taught and the things that we've been exposed to. I'll leave you with this line from C.S. Lewis. He says this. He says, Christianity, if false, if false is of no importance, and if true, is of infinite importance. The only thing it cannot be is moderately important. If Christianity is only true for you, then it's likely moderately important. You make time for it when you have time for it. And that's about where it stops. But if it is truth, then it is of infinite importance. And it affects every part of your waking moments, every interaction, every thought, every emotion, every decision and choice and action. It touches all of it not just for the 60 minutes that we're gathered together on Sunday morning. And if we can have certainty in that, then everything will be different. So, friends, we're going to celebrate communion here in a second. And we do that because there is truth in the story of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And when we come forward to the table we experience that truth again and again in our life, that there is a God who is at work in the world and who longs to be at work inside of each one of us, helping us live into the example of his son. And so I'm going to pray that that will be so this morning, both in our time together at the table and both over the next several weeks as we walk through the gospel of Luke. Let's pray. Gracious God, we are so grateful that you loved us long before we learned to love you. God, draw us closer to you. Clean our hands and purify our hearts so that we can recognize the truth of your love for us and what that means for our life. God, show us new ways of living in the example of your son. We pray this in your name. Amen.